Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we transmit some sweet, sweet science over these radio waves. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature exploding supernovas, creepy cane toads, and ocean acidification. But first up, let's have some news with me and Julianne Popple. So quite recently, the International Programme on the State of the Ocean had an interdisciplinary workshop in April, and the results are beginning to trickle out. They're worse than we imagined. Just to take a step back and talk about ocean acidification, it's a phenomenon that's been caused by the uptake of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Between 1751 and 1994, oceans have decreased from a pH of 8.25 to 8.14. While that doesn't sound like a lot, it actually corresponds to close to 30% increase in ocean acidity. Currently, the ocean is absorbing close to 55% of the carbon released by human activity, and it is predicted that the acidity of the oceans will double in the next 40 years, which is a rate 100 times faster than any change in the ocean acidity in the last 200 million years. Now back to the report. It suggests that phytoplankton will be affected and less able to support the productive and diverse food chains that we see in the oceans today. There's also a phenomenon called ocean warming, which causes the zooplankton, which are the little animals in the ocean, to grow faster than the phytoplankton, which are the little vegetables. And they're able to eat more phytoplankton faster in warmer water. This has knock-on effects for animals up in the food chain. The third factor affecting the oceans is oxygen depletion, because there's more phytoplankton, so there's less oxygen in the water. The problem so far is that our predictions have looked at this as a single-issue problem, when in fact these three things are interacting synergistically. The panel summarizes it as follows. The combination of stressors on the oceans is creating the conditions associated with the worst major extinction of species in the Earth's history. The official report should be published in 2012, but until then, you can check out some more information at www.stateoftheocean.org. Marine parks officers in Queensland will be trained in turtle necropsy following a dramatic increase in the number of green turtles found dead near Townsville and Gladstone. Over the past 10 years, an average of 10 turtles per year have been stranded on beaches around the Townsville area. However, this year, over 50 turtles have been found dead. 30 green turtles have been found dead around Gladstone this year, along with six dugongs and six dolphins. The Department of Environment and Resource Management states that it's likely that turtles in northern Queensland are experiencing problems with disease following Cyclone Yazi. Some turtles around Gladstone, however, died from injuries caused by fishing nets. Meanwhile, further south in Moreton Bay, Researcher Dr Cathy Townsend has found that a common cause of death in turtles is ingestion of plastic, because plastic closely resembles the turtle's favourite food, jellyfish. Dr Townsend examined 120 turtles found dead and found that 30% had died from ingesting plastic. So please, gentle listeners, take your canvas bags to the supermarket and dispose of all rubbish thoughtfully. In the world of numbers, some mathematicians recently celebrated Tau Day and made the controversial suggestion that the mathematical constant pi should be replaced by its big brother Tau, which is literally pi times two. For those of us whose mathematics education is but a distant memory, pi is a constant that is a ratio of the circumference of a circle relative to its diameter. Tau is instead a ratio of the circumference to the radius of a given circle. 
The founder of Tower Day, Michael Hartle, spoke to the BBC and stated that what you're really doing is defining it as the ratio of the circumference to twice the radius, and that factor of two haunts you throughout mathematics. However, Professor Marcus Sautoy has argued that the whole tau debate is really just a notational fixation, and using tau doesn't change the mathematics. Furthermore, pi has a long history, first discovered by Babylonians in 5000 BC, and later formalised by the famous Greek mathematician Archimedes. So it's likely that pi is here to stay. I think what's gone over the mathematician's head in this instance is that Pi Day is a delicious day, whereas Tau Day is not. Yeah, we should be celebrating pi with pi. I always do. (laughs) A giant sinkhole has appeared at Inskip Point near Rainbow Beach in Queensland. The hole started to appear on Saturday the 25th of June, finally reaching a size of approximately 200 metres wide and approximately 50 metres deep. Sinkhole formation is apparently common in the area, however, the sinkholes are usually much smaller. The cause of the giant sinkhole has not been established. In relation to climate change, apparently covering pig effluent ponds could be an efficient way of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from piggeries, and could be financially beneficial to small piggeries if traded under a carbon farming initiative. Under the government's proposed carbon farming initiative, farmers may be able to earn credit for permanent planting of native trees and reducing methane emissions. One of the biggest sources of methane emissions in pig farming comes from lagoons of effluent, or in other words, pig poo ponds. New guidelines for manure management indicate that by covering these ponds of pig poo, farmers could trap the methane gas, burn it and transform that energy into electricity. According to Cowra Community News, the Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, Senator Joe Ludwig, has said that a carbon offset scheme that pays farmers to reduce pollution is good news. Copies of the methodology and further information on how to submit comments on the Carbon Farming Initiative are available on the Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency website at www.climatechange.gov.au cfi. This year, the 4th Annual Southern Cross Astrophysics Conference, supported by the CSIRO and the Australian Astronomical Observatory, was held at the Sydney Maritime Museum. The theme was supernovas and their host galaxies. Ian Wolfe caught up with Dr. Robert Quimby, postdoctoral scholar at the California Institute of Technology, and asked him, what is a supernova? A supernova, very simply, is just an exploding star. The star actually in the act of final death, exploding up. Part of various groups, but I'm, I'm currently working with the, the Palomar Transient Factory, and what we're doing is uh, we're doing a survey to find things like supernova, so events that weren't there yesterday. So we go through and we take uh, images of the sky, and then we'll go back a day or two later and we'll take images of the same place, parts of the sky, and we'll look for anything new that's popped up. And then what we want to do is we want to see what are these things? Uh, is there anything new that people haven't seen before? What are the rates of these different events? And uh, what can we learn about these events that, that tell us about uh, how stars live and die? And so I believe you found an object called the Quimby. <laughs> Some people call it that, yes. That's... And what is it? So I found basically a new class of supernova that is about 100 times brighter than a typical supernova. They're very bright events at peak. Uh, and they're very energetic. They, they put out a lot of energy over time. And uh, this isn't this is something that uh, people haven't seen before. They've, we've been looking at supernova for uh, a hundred years now, and, and uh, it's kind of remarkable that we're just now finding kind of the brightest, brightest events. Um, so these, um, we think that the supernova that that 
I'm uncovering have uh, some important physical differences between uh, uh, for uh, among other supernovas. So other supernovas are, are powered by actually radioactive heating. So you have an explosion, it's a thermonuclear explosion in some cases, and it produces a lot of radioactive material, and then the heat from that material actually keeps the gas hot and makes it glow for a long period of time. But there's a prediction in that, since it's, since it's a radioactive decay, you know that it should fade with the half-life of the radioactive material. So there should be a very characteristic fading. And the supernova we find actually fade faster than can be explained by uh, the typical radioactive uh, products. So we think these supernovae are a little bit different than uh, the normal thermonuclear supernova. Uh, they also seem to be too bright to be explained by the other type of common supernova, which is called core collapse. And this is when you have a, a very massive star that has a very massive core in it, and, it, and eventually that core gets so massive that it can't support itself under gravity and it collapses. Uh, and there's actually a rebound from that, and that rebound is the explosion of the supernova that we observe. So in these types of events, well, you commonly see hydrogen in these events. That's the most common element in the, in the universe. Uh, we don't see hydrogen in this new class of events. Uh, and that makes it very difficult to explain how, how we can get uh, the bright luminosities that we see. Because one of, one of the key ways that you can make something very bright is to take the kinetic energy, just the, the fast motion of, of the uh, gas, and if that runs into something else, it can heat that up. And there's a conversion of this kinetic energy into this luminosity. But without hydrogen, it's, it's very tricky to do that. So we think what these supernovae we've found are actually something a little bit different than what's been seen before. Well, it'll be very interesting to find out what they are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. That was Dr. Robert Quimby explaining about the three types of supernovas. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2scr.com. Diffusion is recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcasts across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Find us over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, I spoke to Dr. Adam Freeman, a surgical registrar in Victoria, about anatomical variation. So tell me, Adam, what is anatomical variation? You'd have to say it's variation in anatomy. And is this something that happens very often? I mean, I thought bodies were bodies, and, you know, we all have a heart and two lungs. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do. Um, in fact, the, the pictures that you see in the anatomy books are, are, rarely, uh, are rarely the rule. Uh, most people vary from those pictures in, in many different ways. So what sorts of variations are we talking about? I mean, could I, could I be walking around with two hearts? Like Doctor Who? Interestingly, uh, no. No, Victoria, I don't think so. But, but there are lots of other variations that are, that are equally uh, interesting, I think, you'd find. So... Uh, I guess the origin of this comes from uh, what we'd say evolution. Uh, even creationists would acknowledge that there is anatomical variation, but it's more easily explained by the evolutionary model, which is that beings reproduce with a number of errors, and those errors sort of spray out across uh, or throughout the body, and so they can have lots of varied uh, developmental patterns, and so develop different anatomy through their lives. So what sorts of things are we talking? So anything that's not absolutely necessary to work properly for us to survive could vary? Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely correct, Victoria. Yes. A good example of this is the appendix, um, which is a, a remnant uh, in the gut of a lot of people, but a lot of people don't have them. Um, and the reason for that is they don't do anything anymore. So the appendix is basically a, a blind tube of gut that sits on the edge of our, of our normal bowel um, that used to ha have special bugs in it, and it was important for breaking down cellulose and, and plant matter. But since our diets have changed uh, and this thing's shrunken down, uh, it's no longer been necessary. And now it's, it's more of a hindrance uh, than a help. 
um, given that uh, it unfortunately can become inflamed and, and infected and so be a, a cause of, of, of death and so selection and so you can evolve on. And in that way, people that have had appendixes uh, have, uh, have died and not bred and so not, not spread their genes and so uh, lots of people now are born without them. Because they don't need them so they can lose them. That's exactly right. So, okay, the gut is meters and meters and meters long. I can understand that there'd be some variation there, but do you, are there other things that are different in, from people yeah, to people? There are many, many things. Um, for instance, most people think of the of the kidneys as two fist-sized organs that sit sort of up and up in your back. They think about them being in their flank, but there's a there's a great deal of variation with the kidney as well. Some people have just a single kidney. It's called a horseshoe. It's just one big band, uh, and it's shaped like a horseshoe. Interestingly, there are lots of other things. Like lots of people have extra muscles, for instance. Um, there's a, a muscle called palmaris longus that's in the arm of, of a lot of people, um, and uh, it's not in the arm of a lot of other people. Uh, and between the two, there's a, there's a whole spectrum where the muscle is, is being shown to, to degenerate um, because it's no longer necessary because of the postures and grips that we hold these days. I actually don't have a palmaris longus myself. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, well, yeah. clearly a highly evolved species, <laughs> Adam. But um, our listeners can check for themselves. There should be three tendons in your wrist. And if you only have two and a little dimple in between, that means you are also highly evolved. Hmm. Now, some people actually have, uh, another example is, uh, some people have uh, a remnant of a tail uh, in, their, in their cossacks, uh, and other people don't. And it's actually quite quite normal to have that there. It doesn't, doesn't make you a freak. It just means you've got that extra bit. That's incredible. Yeah. So there are examples of bones as well. So um, there's a, a bone called the fabella uh, that about 20% of people have that, that sits down in their calf that 80% of people don't have. Sometimes the, the, there are variations with the, with the healing or the joining of bones. Some people have extra sutures in their or extra cracks in their skulls that are, that are normally there that aren't supposed to be there. Um, there are lots of abnormal arteries that arrive. Oh, some people have an abnormal number of ribs. So uh, there are a lot of people who have an extra, an extra rib and some people have one less rib than normal. And so as a surgeon, do you have to know about all these variations? Does this impact your job? Oh, it certainly does. I think uh, you, you need to be aware that, that it can occur, yes, particularly the important ones. That was Dr. Adam Freeman talking about anatomical variations. Finally, Julianne Popple spoke to Professor Rick Shine about cane toads and what they can teach us about evolution. Firstly, when did your passion for reptiles and uh, snakes and things begin? As far as I can tell, it was when I was very, very young indeed. Uh, my dear departed aunts in Brisbane talk of me uh, wandering around the backyard and picking up small lizards to put in uh, little jam jars when I was uh, you know, old enough to walk. So I, I fear it's been uh, probably a genetically coded uh, a process that uh, happened very early in my childhood. So how did you get from being that small child uh, putting lizards into jam jars to being the uh, reputable professor that you are today? Oh, I think I had the good fortune to be uh, born uh, in Australia in 1950 uh, to supportive parents and uh, in a culture that uh, allowed a kid with an interest to pursue it. So um, I went through uh, high school, I did my uh, undergraduate degree in Canberra, the Australian National University. I did a PhD on snake ecology at the University of New England in Armidale. Uh, went across to the US for a few years uh, on a postdoc, uh, came back to the University of Sydney uh, and I've been here ever since and gradually moved up through the academic ranks. So what have been the biggest questions you've been trying to answer throughout your career? I've actually had a very simple-minded kind of approach to these things. Uh, I think 
Reptiles and amphibians are absolutely glorious creatures, they're beautiful, they're mysterious, and I simply have enjoyed finding out about them and understanding the way in which evolutionary processes interact with ecological factors to, to shape the day-to-day -day lives of these sorts of animals. And in the process, you get to look at lots of really neat evolutionary phenomena, the evolution of life histories and, and, and foraging modes and reproductive biology and, and so forth, and hopefully in the fullness of time that data ends up being very useful if you want to conserve or to manage these populations. So for the most part your career, or at least a good 20 years or so, is focused on the ecology and evolutionary biology of uh, snakes. How did you move from working on these creatures, which are sort of deadly and but respected, to the rather ugly duckling of the biological world, the cane toad. I was dragged kicking and screaming into uh, cane toad biology. Um, about 25 years ago, I set up an ecological study on a tropical floodplain on the Adelaide River between Darwin and Kakadu, which is just a heavenly place if you enjoy uh, snakes and lizards and so on. It's fantastic biodiversity, fantastic abundance, and we had a happy 20-25 years finding out how that system works, you know, what drives year-to-year -year variation in the numbers and types of snakes you see and what they're doing. And then uh, the dreaded cane toad appeared over the horizon. They'd been released in uh, northeastern Australia in Queensland in 1935. They'd been marching westward ever since. And uh, when we looked around six or seven years ago, it was pretty clear the toads were going to get to the Adelaide River floodplain pretty soon. And we had 25 years of background data so that we could work out exactly what effect these miserable little newcomers were going to have on my beloved snakes. So somewhere along the line, uh, about six or seven years ago, cane toads became a big part of the research program. Fascinating. So um, one thing I've been wondering about, though, and this is not to deny how much of a pest that the cane toads are, I wonder if perhaps the media gives cane toads an unfairly bad rap. What do you think about that? I think cane toads have got a really distinctive place in Australian culture. Um, they're, this, they're the animals that everybody loves to hate. Uh, you can sit around at a barbecue and say, oh, cane toads are revolting, and I killed one the other day, and everyone will agree with you that they're revolting, and they'll think that you've done something fairly useful. So, yes, uh, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a peculiar situation with toads. Uh, people seem to blame the individual toad that they find in their backyard for being there. Um, really, it's human beings that brought cane toads to Australia. Um, and it really isn't very sensible to blame the individual toad, certainly not justifiable to treat it in any inhumane fashion. Uh, my aim is to get rid of as many cane toads as we can from Australia, but in doing so we need to use the highest ethical standards in treating the animals in humane ways. Uh, I think the people that do research on toads end up with a sneaking admiration. Uh, they're tough little buggers, they're pretty impressive survival machines. Uh, you've got a giant frog from the Brazilian rainforest that's invaded the driest continent on Earth. Uh, I think we could admire the toads at the same time as we're trying to get rid of them. And on a um, scientific, uh, or the level of scientific theory rather, I understand that studying toads has actually led you to develop a, new, a theory on a new form of evolution. Can you explain that theory to me? Yeah, it's, I think it's a good example of how you're working away on a standard research project and, and sort of big ideas just come up and hit you over the side of the head. Um, one of the first things that we realised when the cane toads arrived in the Adelaide River floodplain was that they were moving incredibly quickly. And individual toads that we radio tracked were moving a kilometre or even two kilometres in a night. And that was incredibly different from what people have recorded in Queensland, in areas where toads have been present for many years. And it became apparent that the cane toad invasion has accelerated dramatically as it's moved across Australia, from about 10 kilometres a year to about 60 kilometres per year. 
Now, good old Charlie Darwin, with his theory of natural selection, would say that an evolved acceleration like that must be due to advantages to the individual animals from going quicker. Uh, and we know it is evolution. We know that it's genetically coded. We know that the offspring of those invasion front toads go just as fast as their parents and so on. But the problem we had is that it didn't seem like there were all that many advantages to being at the front of the invasion. Uh, for a start, the cane toads kill many of the predators when they move through. So within a year or so of arriving, there's not very many goannas and large snakes and quolls and so on left that are prepared to attack a toad. And that's a disadvantage of being at the front because you're meeting all those big things with big teeth that are likely to eat you. So we wondered if there was an alternative evolutionary mechanism that could explain how toads have evolved to move faster and faster. And we've ended up with an idea we call spatial sorting. It simply involves any gene that makes a toad move quicker, or in a straight line, or move more often, uh, tending to end up towards the invasion front. Any gene that arises that slows a toad down, or makes it go around in circles, or takes the night off, tends to get left behind in Queensland. And so what you've got is generation by generation, a foot race across the Australian tropics. Every generation, the only toads at the invasion front are the ones that have moved the fastest. And they're the offspring of the fastest moving toads from the previous generation, which in turn are the offspring of the fastest moving toads from the generation before. So through 75 years, we've had this sorting out of genes within the toad population, and it's resulted in the evolution of a totally new type of toad, this very fast disperser. It's nothing like as important as natural selection, but I think it's probably only the second uh, mechanism after natural selection that anybody's come up with that can explain the evolution of a new set of phenotypic characteristics. Well, it's really quite amazing, but for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain exactly what the theory of natural selection is for those who aren't familiar? Okay, natural selection is a very simple idea, um, and it just really arises from Darwin's thinking about what's happening out there in nature. Uh, in just about every species, there are more offspring being born that can possibly survive. You know, the number of any kind of animal tends to remain about the same from one year to the next. But if you look at the number of kids that are born, if they all survive, then they, that species would increase enormously in frequency. So clearly most of the offspring that are born don't make it, they die. Add to that the fact that in just about every species, there's a lot of variation in individuals. You know, one puppy doesn't look the same as the, the other puppy uh, that was born at the same time. Now, some of those characteristics will be completely irrelevant to whether you survive or not, but some of them will matter. And so we have a lot more individuals being born than can survive. We have some of those individuals having characteristics that suit them to the local environment, whereas some don't. And so inevitably, we get changes through time such that uh, the, the proportion of individuals with the, the useful characteristics in that local environment will increase, and the proportion of individuals with characteristics that don't pay off for them in that environment will disappear. And so through time, we get natural selection, and as long as those characteristics have a genetic basis, that is, offspring tend to resemble their parents, then that will be a long-term cumulative process, and we've got evolution. So the difference between classic natural selection and your new theory of this new form of evolution is that with your theory there's no selective advantage conferred on these individuals being faster, they're just spatially assorting themselves because they're faster, rather than natural selection which is actually passing on some sort of selective advantage to their offspring having more offspring. Is that right? Yes, under, under Darwinian thinking, the reason that toads are going quicker now is that it's paid off. Uh, genes that said move faster have left more copies of themselves than genes that said move slowly. Under spatial sorting, that's not required. Uh, individuals at the front could have exactly the same probability of surviving and reproducing as individuals that move more slowly. But it's simply a mathematical certainty 
that if everybody starts out at the same place at the same time, the ones that are moving quicker are going to end up at the invasion front. And if that keeps happening generation after generation, even if it doesn't help you to move faster, you're going to end up with some very strange looking dispersal machines at the front. And that's what cane toads in the Northern Territory are like. So finally, what I'd like to ask you in closing is, what is the strangest thing you've done in the name of research and what was the rationale behind it? I think probably doing this interview with you would be right up there near the top of the list. Um, <laughs> if I had to go beyond that, um, I have fond memories of a small island off northeastern China where small birds uh, migrate every year from uh, the forests of Southeast Asia up to Siberia to breed and they and their offspring come back again in, in, in autumn. And there's a little island that sits just in exactly the right spot to serve as a step, stepping stone for those birds and their migration. And it contains a, a unique species of pit viper, a venomous snake that, where, that is only active for about a month in spring and a month in autumn when the birds are migrating. Uh, and it sits up in the trees and it waits for the birds to come. And uh, we did quite a lot of work there. It's, it's, kind of, it's almost a scary place to be. Incredible densities of snakes, about one every meter, per meter squared. But uh, some of the work I did was looking at the responses of snakes to different types of birds, working out why they ate what they ate. And so I, I picked up a dead bird that was uh, lying on the ground. A snake had bitten it and, but hadn't managed to swallow it. Uh, you can pick up a few hundred birds like that at this place called Shadow, uh, and tied it to a bit of fishing line uh, on the end of a fishing rod and, and wandered around dangling it in front of these pit vipers in little trees. And it did occur to me that if my mother could see me, she'd probably feel that my career had gone in an unfortunate direction. Did you actually run into anyone while you were doing this particular activity? No, the only other people on the island were our Chinese collaborators and they had... I think formed the opinion from the very beginning that we were sort of bizarre and doing strange Western things that didn't really make much sense. So that was just another manifestation of, of um, psychiatric illness, I think. Well, for what it's worth, I think you've made a great contribution to uh, biological research. And thank you very much for talking to me, Professor Shine. My pleasure. That was Professor Rick Shine of the University of Sydney talking about cane toads and evolution. And that's all from us on this edition of Diffusion. You can send us emails at diffusion at 2SER.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings, or stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website at www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Julianne Popel, Victoria Bond, and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And we're joined in the studios by Martin Lewis and Therese Chen.